Since 1973, abortion rights have been the accepted law of the land. The infamous decision was based on Roe v. Wade, the case before the Supreme Court of the United States. We are now 48 years on, but the controversy still rages between pro-abortion and pro-life camps. Welcome to Wisdom 828, where we're dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. Hi, I'm Bob Buchanan. The debate about abortion is still raging in the United States. You would think that the Supreme Court decision in 1973 would have settled the issue, but it hasn't. So the question has to be raised, what is the Christian view of abortion? Is it a practice that we can support? My answer is an unqualified no, nor should Christians condone the practice. The topic of abortion has many facets to answer because the pro-abortion forces have put up so many arguments, arguments concerning the definition of personhood, biological arguments, human rights arguments, the meaningful life arguments. But I wanna focus on just two reasons why Christians should not support abortion. The first is the finding itself of the right to abortion. Many legal, uh, many legal experts believe the finding of the Blackman Court in 1973 was on a fabricated right of the 14th Amendment. And as far back as 1973, lawyers on both sides of the issue have written and gone on record that the court's decision was fallacious. One of the most important critiques, I think, came from Edward Lazarus, a former law clerk to Justice Harry Blackman, the author of the Roe decision. Lazarus published a critique of the court's decision in 2002, which is 30 years later, and he claimed that the decision bordered on the indefensible. He wrote this as someone avowedly committed to a woman's right to choose and as someone who he said, quote, loved Roe's author, that is uh, Justice Blackman, like a grandfather. Lazarus identified the fallacy of the decision. He wrote this, quote, it has little connection to the constitutional right it purportedly interpreted. A constitutional right to privacy broad enough to include abortion has no meaningful foundation in the constitutional text, history, or precedent. The proof of Roe's failings comes not from the writings of those unsympathetic to a woman's rights, but from the decision itself and the friends who have tried to sustain it. Justice Blackmun's opinion provides essentially no reasoning in support of its holding. And in the almost 30 years since Roe's announcement, no one has produced a convincing defense of Roe in its own terms." End quote. For the record, Lazarus believes that abortion can stand the test of law on better constitutional footing. Another aspect of the decision important for Christians is the poor representation from history and some might even say revisionist history that uh, made its way to the court about the practice of abortion. Uh, from her document, 10 Legal Reasons to Reject Roe v. Wade, Susan E. Wills, Associate Director of Education for the Secretariat for Pro-Life Activities of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, wrote that the court misrepresented the history of abortion practice and attitudes towards it. The court's decision said that, quote, abortion had been widely practiced and unpu uh, unpunished until the appearance of restrictive laws in the prudishly Victorian 19th century. Now notice the language it's used to throw some shade on the Victorians. Wills then pointed out that Hippocrates, the Greek father of medicine, 
whose oath-guided medical ethics for over 2,000 years wrote as part of that oath, I will, uh, I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest any counsel, and in like manner, I will not give to a woman a method to produce abortion. Abortion was sometimes practiced in the Greek world with often deadly results to the mothers, and so infant, uh, infanticide was allowed. This meant leaving live babies, most often girls, exposed to the elements to die. And the justification for this practice was family planning because the nation had too many mouths to feed. But from 230 BC, Greece practiced a one-child family. And since sons were more wanted than daughters, daughters were disposable as an economic liability because of a dowry that had to be supplied at their marriage. Infanticide became the solution to this economic stress on the family and overpopulation. As I said, abortions were attempted, but almost always fatal to the mother. And by the time we get to the Roman Emperor Septimius Severus, who reigned from AD 193 to 211, abortion was legally outlawed. But still, exposure of the newborn child continued to be the preferred method of disposing of unwanted children. And they were often left on trash heaps or in some isolated place to die. Slave traders might take the child to be sold or reared for a life of prostitution. Part of that society's justification for death by exposure was that a newborn was not considered part of the family until acknowledged by the father as his child and received him or her into the family in a religious ceremony. Thus, says one historian, they did not consider exposure murder, but simply the refusal to admit to society. The church responded to this atrocity by taking children who were left to die and bringing them into their homes. From the earliest centuries of church history, a document called the Didache, Greek for the teaching, references the practice of exposure. The document was a kind of Christian manual about how to live the Christian life. The date is often debated. It could have been written as early as AD 70 or to 100. Um, other scholars will say it was written at least before AD 300. But in chapter five, a chapter titled The Way of Death, a long list of unchristian prohibitions is mentioned, and among them is murderers of children, destroyers of the handiwork of God. The early church fathers considered all forms of abortion and exposure of a newborn as forbidden by scripture. In the fourth century, Basil the Great wrote, those who give abortifacients for the destruction of a child conceived in the womb are murderers themselves, along with those receiving the poisons. A number of early church fathers, Augustine, Cypriot, uh, Cyprian, uh, uh, Christostom, and reformers like Calvin, and contemporary theologians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer all condemned abortion as a most monstrous crime to rob the life of a human being which has not yet begun to enjoy. The 20th century Swiss theologian Karl Barth wrote, the unborn child is from the very first a child. It is a man and not a thing, not a mere part of a mother's body. Those who live uh, by mercy will always be disposed to practice mercy, especially to the human being which is so dependent on the mercy of others as the unborn child. Christians like Jewish believers hold to the biblical teaching that life begins at conception and that all life, regardless of ethnicity, age or gender, deformity or disability, is sacred because every person is made in the image of God. Because God holds life sacred, we should too, and treat everyone with dignity. 
Although the image of God in humans is broken and marred by sin, nonetheless, each person is deserving of respect for the image of God that is in them. There are several biblical texts to point uh, to that could substantiate that life begins at conception, but I'll mention two of them from the Psalms, one from the Old Testament uh, prophet and, and another important one from the Gospels. The first comes from Psalm 71 in which David wrote, Upon you I have learned from before my birth, you are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Quite a statement to make from a mere blob of tissue, wouldn't you say? And Psalm 139 recognizes that God is creator of every person from conception. The Psalm reads, for you, God formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It is God who dignifies every person with life from conception to birth to the grave. Every life created by God has significance. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah knew that his life had purpose when God said to him, before I formed you in the, in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The New Testament affirms the life of the child in the womb in a brief exchange between Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Mary had just been told that she had conceived, or would conceive Jesus when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon her and the Most High would overshadow her. She was told to visit Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah. And at that time, Elizabeth, who had previously been barren, was already six months pregnant with John the Baptist. When Mary walked into the house of Zechariah and said her hellos to Elizabeth, at Mary's voice, John the Baptist, in his mother's womb, leapt for joy. This is an amazing story. God said two things about John the Baptist. First, that he would announce the coming of the Lord Jesus. And second, that he would be filled from the Holy Spirit from the womb. And at this meeting, God confirmed John's announcement role, Jesus' saving role, and he filled John and the two women with the Holy Spirit, confirming the promises of God to send his son into the world as savior. So no. Christians should not support nor condone abortion. We can give our time and we can give financially to support organizations fighting to overturn Roe. We can explain the biblical worldview to anyone who will listen to us. Most of all, we can pray that God would overturn this blight on our nation by changing hearts. We should also pray that he might forgive those who have had abortions and those who supported those women. He is a forgiving God. Well, that's all the time we have for today. So thanks for joining me and thanks to Steve Dine behind the camera and in the editing room, uh, making Wisdom 828 march on in its never ending mission to stamp out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. You be of good cheer.